This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. I'm Tim Kreit from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. Today's episode is the second in a multi-part series coming to you from the Advances in Neuroblastoma Research Conference in Cologne, Germany, May 2014. Our co-hosts visiting there were Drs. Nile Shaw and Carrie Streeby. And today they interviewed Dr. Kate Matei and Greg Yannick. So take it away, Nile. And welcome to this week's episode of This Week in Pediatric Oncology. I'm Nile Shaw, Assistant Professor in uh, the Division of Pediatric Hematology Oncology at Nationwide Children's, and with my guest host, Carrie Streeby, one of our fellows in the division. Hello. And uh, we're very happy to have back with us another repeat interviewee, uh, Dr. Catherine Matei who is a professor um, in the Department of Pediatrics at the UCSF School of Medicine. Hi, Neela and Carrie. Nice to be here. Thank you. Dr. Mathay's resume is quite uh, renowned and extensive. In addition to her position as professor, she's a leader of the Pediatric Malignancies Program and holds the Mildred B. Strauss Endowed Chair in Translational Research in Pediatric Oncology and is also leader of NANT, uh, which is perhaps my favorite title. <laughs> <laughs> she is uh, also, we're very happy to say, the incoming president of the Advance, Advances in Neuroblastomer Research Association um, for the new term. And we're also very happy to uh, welcome Dr. Gregory Yannick. Hi. <laughs> Dr. Yannick is uh, a professor in hematology oncology and professor of internal medicine and pediatrics at the University of Michigan uh, School of Medicine. Um, and he's also the Leland and Elaine Blatt family professor of pediatric hematology and oncology and one of the senior leaders in bone marrow transplant um, and their group. Uh, so welcome to you both. We're very happy to have you here um, at ANR and so to start, for you, Dr. Yannick, we'd really just like to know, how did you get into this whole gamish of neuroblastoma? <laughs> you know, we, we talked about this yesterday, um, just briefly. And, and the comment I made was that sometimes the most important moments in your life happen. And at the time they happen, you don't even realize the importance of this. Um, and in my particular life, it was that way. I trained at the University of Cincinnati. Um, and we had three fellows in our year. All three fellows elected to go into the same lab. It was a large lab that was doing work on cell cycle kinetics and leukemias and myelodysplastic syndrome. Um, but this particular group of fellows, the three of us are going to be working on solid tumors. The very first day, the head of the lab, Dr. Preissler and Dr. Raza, brought a hat together uh, for the three of us. And they had three names in a hat uh, where they had just put three tumors. Uh, I reached in first and pulled out neuroblastoma. Uh, Claire Mazeski, one of my good friends and colleagues now at Emory, pulled out brain tumors. And Brad George, another good friend and colleague, pulled out lymphomas. To this day, each of us has had a particular focus in either neuroblastoma, brain tumors, or lymphomas, in part based on pulling a name out of a hat <laughs> from our second year of our fellowship uh, training in Cincinnati. 
And, and I stuck with it uh, through that. It, it helped to make a career. And, and we're very happy that you, you did. Um, it's always good to kind of see a different perspective uh, to an airblast, particularly from the critical role that uh, the bone marrow transplant plays in, uh, in our treatment. Uh, interestingly, uh, Dr. Mathay, I also saw in your CV, your first publications were actually hematology publications. Yes, but actually my first exposure to pediatric oncology was in medical school at Penn with Audrey Evans, who was really the first clinical leader in neuroblastoma. And I personally went with her to clinics and worked with her, and I was very inspired by that. But then in, during my early years of fellowship, I veered away because more of the laboratory research was going on in hematology, and then I worked in leukemia and targeted therapy in the mm -hmm. lab. Uh, but my first really exciting clinical moment was a stage 4S patient in my third year fellowship who was covered with masses, and we didn't treat him, and they all matured. Wow. And went away, and I still show those slides. The kid is now 30 years old. Um, and so that, I got very intrigued by neuroblastoma, and gradually in the, through the children's oncology group began doing clinical research uh, under the leadership of Bob Seeger. And uh, we've continued to work together over 30 years now. <laughs> wow, that is fantastic. <laughs> so uh, that's become my main focus after that. That's amazing that as Kate said, a one patient can, in essence, change your life or at least a focus. <laughs> you know, in my own career, uh, when I came to the University of Michigan in 1993, uh, I was one of their uh, transplant physicians at that time. We had had an MIBG therapy program that had started several years before that, but it kind of dropped off. And nobody, in essence, for a period from around 93, 94, uh, up until around 97 had been doing MIBG therapy. I thought that at that time uh, that it was good to resurrect it. And as, a, as a transplant physician, I thought of bringing the MIBG into the uh, transplant preparative regimen. So I wrote this protocol with the help of the colleagues around me um, in nuclear medicine and transplant, combining MIBG with transplant. And the very first patient we treated was a young gal from Lansing. Uh, she had Literally, as one person said, a, a tumor with a girl growing around it. I mean, literally every single part of the body was lighting up on MIBG scan, multiple soft tissue masses, diffuse marrow involvement. Um, the family came to us and said, you know, I know that this protocol isn't yet open, but can you get it open so you can try treating our daughter? Um, I actually went to our IRB and asked them to move up the review of the protocol. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and they did. They approved it. We treated her. Uh, and then 28 days after the, after the transplant phase, I still remember standing in the hallway exactly where I was uh, when they walked over the post-transplant um, MIBG scan. Mm -hmm. And it was clear. And I just looked at it and I said, well, what patient is this? Said, this is the patient that we just, you just treated with on your MIBG transplant protocol. And I still remember looking at this and just shaking my head thinking, on, on the loop? That's astounding, yeah. Yeah, and Kate, I'm sure you've had similar experiences over the years too. You know, and in many ways, uh, you know, I made a comment yesterday when I was giving a talk that you know we're a band of brothers in this, in terms of all of us working for a county goal. But there are certain brothers amongst us that are actually our leaders. And in in my own 
career in terms of my neuromastoma work, I, I have to admit, Kate has truly been a mentor to me. I am a sister. Kate's <laughs> 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 been a sister, band of brothers and sisters. Uh, but I can't tell you how much I've appreciated working you know, alongside Kate on a number of projects over the last 15 years or so. Uh, and just her help and mentorship is truly tremendous. Uh, and now that we've brought in the Europeans uh, that we've known for some time, but they literally are marching in step with us also. And, and truly the leadership and mentorship of some of them is, I, I value just as much. And, and that's absolutely shown in, in a wonderful track record of collaboration between the two of you. And I know that uh, whenever we talk about you know advances, particularly in MIBG, your, your names go hand in hand. So. <laughs> Well, it's kind of interesting how it's bounced back and forth because I think in 1984, simultaneously, we did a, the first MIBG <laughs> on a neuroblastoma patient and someone in, it was either Holland or Germany did, I think it was Germany, they did the first yeah, one so. on a neuroblastoma patient and we published the same year. And then when I came to Europe on one of our <coughs> sabbaticals in uh, 2000, I collaborated very closely with the Institut Curie and the Gustave Roussy, and we reviewed all their beautiful MIBG scans and <laughs> patients, and, and uh, you know, they really convinced me that their scoring system helped in response. And then Greg has taken that four levels up, I think, <laughs> in the CMG yeah. and organized the whole international uh, validation of the two scoring systems. So it's really, it's bounced back and forth, yeah, yeah. back and forth. It's interesting, you know, you mentioned that, Kate, you're right. Um, the scoring system <coughs> started at the Curie Institute. Kate was the one who brought it back to right. North America, and she had several major publications on it uh, you know, earlier in that decade. And it became known, in essence, the Curie scoring system, but it really became known as the COG scoring yeah. system. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's absolutely true. And, and uh, you know, that's certainly, uh, we, we did a little bit of the background on that and, you know, found that the, the Curie score did actually come from the paper for, by Adi et al. in 1995, but it really wasn't right. until Dr. Mathieu's paper in 2003, which demonstrated validity in a clinical right. setting, and then that's Dr. Vianek's paper last year, or, uh, sorry, two years ago now, um, in the Journal of Nuclear Medicine. Last year. Last year, year yeah. it was 2013. Um, that really demonstrated uh, um, a prognostic score. And it shows uh, very uh, fluidly that um, that feedback that you guys are talking about. But it was so funny because the Europeans then did not like the Curie score that they had developed. <laughs> <laughs> and they changed it to a much uh, more complex system. So they cited in scoring. Mm -hmm. As Greg presented, I think, a little mm -hmm. bit of their data, they've done a beautiful analysis showing that the complexity didn't add anything. Exactly. Yeah. And Dr. Yannick, do you want to just address for the purposes of the podcast what exactly your talk was about <coughs> yesterday, just briefly? So yesterday I talked about, um, I went through the history of MIBG scoring and just tried to brought it together from where it started to where it is now. In a part, you just heard Kate talk about some of the things. I, I uh, talked about the initiation of the Curie scoring system and that how at COG we use that Curie scoring system to look at a discovery set on one of our COG high-risk trials, COG A3973. And then in parallel with that, the European group, or the Syopic group, uh, had developed their own scoring system, as Kate just alluded to. And they used their, a discovery set called the Syopic high-risk study HRNBL1. Mm -hmm. So they had their discovery set of their high-risk trial, we had our discovery set on our high-risk trial, and we both came up with very similar 
uh, results in terms of the prognostic significance of MIBG scoring, uh, specifically at the end of induction or post-induction scoring. And their scores are just a little different than ours, and ours are just a little different than theirs. So what we then did, an amazing show of collaboration, is we sent our radiology reviewers to Vienna, Austria, and they sent their radiology reviewers <laughs> to Providence, Rhode Island, which is where we house all of our MIBG not schools. sure that's a fair trade, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, Vienna, Rhode Island. <laughs> I, I still feel in this whole thing, uh, I ended up having to stay back with the group that went to Providence while everybody else went to <laughs> Talk about this <laughs> So, I, but anyhow, when we, so the, in essence, we switched studies and did our scoring and their study and their scoring and our studies, and just to look if we could validate each other's uh, scoring methods. And the exact same numbers again fell out. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing as predictive for outcomes at the end of induction therapy on our initial COG study were the same numbers we saw at the end of uh, induction on the Siopin study. Mm -hmm. And they saw the exact same thing using their Siopin scoring on both their initial study and then ours. So in essence, we collaborated together to allow us to each validate our own scoring methods. And then as, as Kate was alluding to, we're now putting our, our minds together uh, to look to see what are the strengths of each scoring method that we can then take forward uh, to bring together into one international scoring method. And as I, I made a comment yesterday, that a few years from now, uh, yes, we validated the Curie scoring method now on two independent large data sets. And yes, they validated the Syopid scoring method on two large data sets. But a few years from now, we won't be calling it the Curie scoring system or the uh, Syopid scoring system. It won't be those names as we know it. It'll be an international MIBG scoring system. I guess, Kate? I like that. It'll be IMIBG. <laughs> okay. just, and they just shook hands on that. So just because it, it didn't have a name. I N I B G. I M I B G. I M I B G. International MIBG. score. I M I B G. I like it. It did not have a name until then. <laughs> As long as we don't get any feedback from Apple Core, then I think we're That's in good right. <laughs> <laughs> like, but I like it. <laughs> that is wonderful. Uh -huh. And I think the addition to that is I'll be presenting the work that Greg led on the um, minimal residual disease study where then we show at the beginning of either immunotherapy or isotretinoin that if you have any MIBG visible on your score, you do worse. So even with antibody therapy, mm -hmm. it's the outcome is certainly better when you add antibody to isotretinoin regardless, but it still doesn't make up for having MIBG positivity left. If you do have, um, just to add that, if, if you are MIBG negative going to immunotherapy, well, there was a real advantage, survival advantage, to get, getting the antibody, the chimeric antibody, in addition to the uh, Accutane. Or but not if you had... <laughs> MIBG left. So we have to find something else for those patients. I yeah. think. So in terms of looking for something else, what do you foresee in the future for MIBG therapy playing a role in new therapies for patients who still have residual disease? Well, our, our first approach is trying to add MIBG at the end of induction. And we have a COG pilot study that Brian Weiss is chairing. Um, where patients get five cycles of chemotherapy and then get MIBG. Even if we don't see anything, 
because we think it may be most effective treating minimal residual disease mm -hmm. that, that may be very, very small areas of uptake. And the plan is if this we show feasibility and not too much toxicity with this study, that we will do a randomized trial to see if MIBG helps. And I think the caveat there is all of our studies that we did in Nant and Greg has done uh, in Nant and as his pilot used a consolidation therapy with the MIBG of carboplatin, etoposide, and melphalan. And we showed that that was tolerable, at least using 12 millicuries per kilo of MIBG, and then going two weeks later into transplant. Uh, the pilot now is incorporating busulfan melphalan instead because of European preliminary results uh, showing an advantage of that conditioning regimen. Coming out of the HR NBL1 yes. studies that um, were presented at ASCO in 2011. Yes. And not yet published. Correct. But <laughs> we hope their results hold up. Uh, you know, I was, was going to say that um, we know MIBG works. Uh, we just we're now focusing on ways to make it work better. Uh, Kate's lab at UCSF, a number of investigators at our center and other centers also are looking at ways that we can either augment. MIBG uptake within the cells, or either augment the ability for the MIBG to lead to cell killing. Mm -hmm. Okay, either through the addition, at least in Kate's uh, use at UCSF, some pioneering work that they've done uh, looking at the addition of radiosensitizers, mm -hmm. and specifically one in particular, varinostat. Mm -hmm. uh, I, Kate, you're hearing me say this probably for the first time. I really have a lot of hope and faith in varinostat. Our own radio sensitizer studies that we've done at U of M, we validated what they saw. Varinostat is an incredibly powerful radio sensitizer uh, in our models that we did uh, in our uh, preclinical models with our MIBG type models. So I it also increases uh, expression of the norepinephrine transporter, so increases uptake of MIBG in the tumors. But I think we have to, I mean, in Nant, we are actually have just opened a randomized phase two trial because we're not sure that these add anything to the MIBG alone. So we're comparing two different radio sensitizers, uh, a Rinotecan with MIBG, yep. the Varinostat with MIBG to MIBG alone. Mm -hmm. And that will give us, I hope, an indication of which is better and less toxic. One of the things we're faced with is that we're recognizing the amount of heterogeneity that these tumors have, uh, and that these tumors may have different areas within one tumor mm -hmm. that may be different than another area within that tumor. Uh, there may be areas in the tumor that have higher degrees of this NET. So NET uh, is the channel through which the MIBG gets taken up. So tumors that have a high amount, we call expression of NET, uh, presumably will take up more MIBG or, or better. On the other hand, tumors that have high NET may also be the same ones that pump it back out quickly. <laughs> yeah. uh, but there's probably a flow in and out. Mm -hmm. So uh, Kate's group also, uh, in, in Steve Du Bois, we set a, a publication looking at NET expression in tumors. And Kate, to my recollection, and surprisingly, it was the MCAN amplified tumors that had the lower amounts of NET expression, yes. which I thought was an incredible finding. Mm -hmm. um, we're actually now looking at net expression in tumors 
And we haven't published this yet, so what, what the heck, I'll just tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, not, but it's, everything's all preliminary. But what we're, what's puzzling us is that there does appear to be variable levels of expression potentially within the same tumor. Mm -hmm. uh, and it may be that you've got areas of tumor, what we call hypoxia, or tumor, areas where they have different areas of tumor metabolism, what we call glycolytic pathways and their, their metabolic pathways that may be different. And then we have different levels of uptake then potentially of MIBG or efflux of the MIBG. Certainly, and I think we've all, as clinicians, have seen scans where the even within the same tumor mass, there can be subtle shades of of um, MIBG uptake uh, that's observable there as well. So I was struck yesterday by one of the presentations. Um, it was a European group. I just can't remember which group it was that showed they were looking at elk. The presence of ALK mutations in neuroblastoma. And they actually showed a tumor where they did sampling uh, from different areas of the tumor. And in some areas, they actually showed areas that they had abnormal ALK expression or mutations. And other areas were completely normal. And I just thought that was fascinating because it probably mirrors what we potentially may see also within within the NAT expression uh, in tumors also. Well, and it's also true that there are other factors uh, mediating response, because we have lots of patients who have fantastic uptake of MIBG after their therapy, and the tumor sits there. Yes. So either they're radio-resistant, or there's not enough replicating cells to respond to the radiation effect. So. It's clearly a, there's a lot to learn. Oh, yeah. Clearly a lot to learn, clearly a lot of advances, but clearly a lot of challenges still remaining. So um, the uh, what's most exciting, uh, you guys, as far as what you've seen here at ANR? Um, and uh, um, we're very excited to hear about the, the new studies um, that are going to be rolling out for NADS. Are there anything else that you'd like to highlight as far as... Uh, um, uh, things that we should look out for on the horizon? Well, I think right now, I mean, the buzzword this year is immunotherapy, and I think there are many, many approaches that we're hearing about. Uh, there was a talk about the CAR T cells from John Anderson yesterday in neuroblastoma. We have a few patients who, with relapse disease who've gone for therapy with this, and there have been some pretty exciting results in leukemia, and I think we don't know what's going to happen with those with the solid tumors. Um, there are vaccines, as you know well, coming from Ohio. There's a lot of tests of vaccine therapy. In NAND, we have currently opened an immunotherapy protocol where we're using a drug called lenalidomide, which actually stimulates immune reactivity in NK cells. And we're using that in lieu of the interleukin-2, which is so toxic uh, in the current standard therapy. So we're using that combined with CH1418, the anti-GD2 antibody. And our next protocol, which should be opening this fall, is going to use the patient's own NK cells, which will be expanded and activated in vitro, cryopreserved, then shipped back for infusion. Um, we're collaborating with MD Anderson on this, with Lawrence Cooper and Dean Lee, and uh, that those will then be given with antibody and lenalidomide, and this has had, you know, incredible effects in uh, non-skid mice with xenografted neuroblastoma tumors, and we'll have to see what happens with people. So really super boosting their immune system yeah. to, instead of just 
requiring the body to make the army at the time, really just kind of pulling in the reserves to exactly. go into the army. So that's one of our, uh, I think, exciting new NANT protocols. Yeah, I think in, to add to that, in terms of uh, trying to come up with novel therapeutic targets or ideas, and, and I agree with what Kate was saying, immunotherapy is the buzzword. But what I've actually been impressed with the last day here was just getting an understanding of the basic biology of what we call neuronal development. And the talks we heard this morning, for example, uh, from the uh, California Institute of Technology group. Uh, where Led by Marianne Bonner, by who's Marianne our Bonner. keynote speaker right. this morning. Exactly. And where Marianne talked about the normal patterns of migration of neuronal cells. So as they initially develop and then migrate to form both our central nervous system and then our peripheral nerves, uh, the cells that go to the adrenal glands. And then her really elegant work actually showing how different what we call transcription factors, you can think of them as growth factors, uh, at different levels, different ones at different levels would cause different, let's just say, nerves to form in location A versus B versus C versus D. And in order for us to be able to, to understand what's the best targets uh, to focus on or the best treatments, we have to have virtually a complete understanding of the basic biology. And I thought her talk today really laid out some of the basic biology of what we call embryogenesis. Mm -hmm. What is the normal development pathways? And then the toxic that we heard after that, that focused on MCM. MCM is a, we call an oncogene or proto-oncogene that when overexpressed, you know, is seen, certainly it's associated with a higher risk phenotype. Um, in, in many of the talks today, talking about how MCM uh, relates to P53 expression, how MCM uh, also can be involved in what they call hormone receptor expression, how MCM can be involved with some other uh, very novel proteins, there's one called EZH2 that was talked about this morning that also is involved in T-cell activation also and I found particularly interesting as a transplanter because uh, we're actually looking at EZH2 inhibitors in transplant and now they're looking at EZH2H EZH2H and but simply put the talks this morning focused on understanding some of the normal biologic pathways, both in embryogenesis, and then some of the normal pathways that, N, that NMIC and CMIC are involved with in controlling neuronal development. So. And okay. so that leads me to a couple of other NANT studies, okay. because MICN has been considered very undruggable because it's mm -hmm. a very uh, short-lived transcription factor. So we've been concentrating on other portions of the NMIC pathway and um, proteins that stabilize MCN and then ways to inhibit those. So one of our NAND protocols currently is using an Aurora kinase inhibitor, uh, which is also important in the MCN pathway uh, combined with chemotherapy. And one of our researchers at UCSF is presenting more of his data here on a new kind of Aurora kinase inhibitor, which is irreversible. It's disrupts the conformation. So instead of just inhibiting Aurora kinase, it actually inhibits the uh, MCN directly. Okay. And uh, we also have a new NAND protocol that will be opening this summer, 
which is using a PI3 kinase inhibitor, which is, again, the, sort of the top of the MCN pathway. And uh, that's a, a drug called SF1126, which, again, has shown a lot of activity in preclinical studies and is currently in phase one and two adult trials that we'll be testing uh, as well in NANT. Because I think MCN, it's old. <laughs> it's the first thing described in neuroblastoma in 1980, but it's, as Greg said, it's still the key. There are about three consecutive sessions all focusing on MCN at this meeting, and it's such an important gene in, in growth of these cells and in tumor initiation. And again, at UCSF, we have ongoing work that was presented at the stem cell workshop on you know, inserting MCN into iPSC uh, human stem cells and seeing what happens at different stages or when you add other mutated genes yep. such as ALK. For the parents out there, they hear all these names from all these different proteins, different enzymes, uh, things that inhibit, things that promote growth, uh, things that serve as checks and balances. And, and for many of the, the parents that are listening, they could just be names. You know, in my town, uh, I live in a, in a suburb of Detroit, and there's a, a rise in the road uh, at one point, uh, and when you're in your car and you're at a light, you're at this, at this top of this hill, and you can actually look down, and you can actually see in front of you all of the lights up ahead for several miles. You know, there's a lot of lights right in the road you can see. And all of a sudden you realize that in order to get from A to B, Every light is going to have to be turned green. And it's probably that way of neuroblastoma, that as you look, stand on top of the hill and look down, there's probably a whole series of lights that have to be green for you to have normal growth, or in this case, tumor cell kill. If at any point there's a red light here, a red light there, <laughs> it's going to block your pathway. And the goal for us as researchers is to find out which of those lights is the key light. Which light is staying on the longest? Which light is the brightest red? And it may be that some of these red lights are only on for a few seconds, meaning they don't have as significant control as some of these other red lights do. You know, in our own city, we have one huge light, uh, and it may be that NMIC is, um, plays a role in this, and it's not even a light. We have a rare most We actually, we have one huge checkpoint as you look down that hill. It's not even a light. It's a railroad crossing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that railroad crossing negates all other lights, meaning that there may be one key enzyme, one key protein, one key gene that literally is that rate limiting step. It's that railroad crossing that, you know what, it doesn't matter what the rest of the lights are, the train's coming across. Yeah. <laughs> um, so as I look at that, I, I kind of use it as another analogy that it, it's important for us to recognize that it's not just one light that we have to turn green. It's probably a whole series, and then we have to be wary of that word one crossing. It's like yeah. about 40 this morning. With <laughs> genes, mutations, fusion proteins. You know, Kate, I, I thought of that when I was just talking about this, because I was thinking, how many lights are there? There's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> how many genes in the genome? There's a lot. Absolutely. Millions. So clearly a, a, lot of, a lot of complexity to this, and... and uh, as you've both alluded to, understanding the, the basic biology, understanding really that key step that leads to neuroblastoma in the first uh, place is, is going to be critical to attacking this in a smarter way rather than just in a more punishing way. But I'm not sure 
that we're ever going to get there with stopping one light, and that's why right. many of us are combining the genetic inhibitors Absolutely. with chemotherapy, which yeah. kind of hits all the lights a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, this has been a great talk. Um, I do want to offer, uh, I would like uh, to invite Dr. Mathe to, to discuss uh, one additional uh, subject. Recently, there was a, a statement put out by the COG discussing the statistical analysis of a, of a recent study. And simply for, for the parents um, and for the clinicians um, at home to, to get a better sense of what really are, is the impact of that statement. Right, so this relates to the uh, study that we did in the children's oncology group in the 1990s, which was a study in which we first tested whether giving very high-dose chemotherapy called myeloablative therapy followed by bone marrow transplant using your own bone marrow autologous transplant would improve survival or outcome in neuroblastoma compared to standard chemotherapy, which was what was used at that time. And we then said, well, even with the transplant, the high-dose therapy, patients are relapsing, and what can we do? And so we also did a second randomization for patients who got through the transplant, testing a medication called isotretinoin, or 13-cis-retinoic acid, and this medicine makes neuroblastoma become mature neural tissue or neurons in the laboratory and stop growing. And we had some preliminary evidence in children that it also uh, could eliminate very small amounts of disease in their bone marrow that had been resistant to chemotherapy. So children were treated with everybody got a standard induction chemotherapy and then half the children got transplant and half got more chemotherapy. And then at the end of that period, which was about nine months from diagnosis, the group of children still surviving without progression of their disease were again assigned randomly by a computer either to receive isotretinoin or no further therapy. And the initial results of that study published in the New England Journal in 1999 showed that event-free survival, meaning that the survival of children without relapse, was significantly improved by bone marrow transplant. It also showed that retinoic acid, using a statistical test looking at their outcome three years from, from randomization, uh, was the event-free survival was significantly improved Neither of those therapies improved overall survival significantly, though the curves were different. They were better with transplant, better with retina, with uh, isotretinoin. And to emphasize what we mean by significant here is statistically mm -hmm. significant. We're meaning right. if you did this over and over and over, what's the chance that you're going to get the same result? Not meaning are we removing all the tumor versus some of the right. tumor. We're talking about statistics here. But the... the event-free survival with the use of transplant was about 19% higher than the event-free survival without transplant. Right. Uh, still not as good as we'd like, though. <laughs> the heading in the right direction, nonetheless. <laughs> and, uh, but still less than 50%.
So then in 2009, we did what's called an update where we had longer follow-up. We now had eight years of follow-up from the surviving children from that study. And we again analyzed the results. And again, we showed that the event-free survival using transplant was significantly higher than without transplant. At the time of publication, the statistical analysis that was done also said that the survival was significantly better with the retinoic acid. And it turns out an error was discovered in that statistical calculation, not in any of the data or the curves that were published. Everything was correct, but the actual uh, multiplication and division were wrong. And so a correction was submitted saying that the overall survival with the isotretinoin was not significantly improved. And uh, at that time on the reanalysis, the event-free survival of the group also with isotretinoin was not significantly better. However, when you look at the curves of children who underwent both randomizations, there was a much better outcome survival for children who got both transplant and isotretinoin. Though the children who weren't transplanted, there was really no difference uh, whether or not they also got the isotretinoin. So we did not change our recommendations for using transplant, obviously, since it still showed a significant improvement in outcome. We did not change our recommendations for the isotretinoin because although it did not significantly improve survival overall, the curve is higher, and it's a very non-toxic oral drug. So, and we haven't seen any long-term risks from that so far in any of our uh, analyses. So it continues to be considered standard to get uh, both those therapies, and now with our new antibody showing further improvement, uh, we, uh, when combined with the isotretinoin, our standard recommendation is high-dose therapy with transplant, followed by antibody and isotretinoin. Okay, okay, just correct me on this if I'm wrong. Just as our therapy evolves over time, it's hard for parents to appreciate the fact that statistics are not just black and white. Statistical evaluations also evolve. And as our therapy has evolved in neuroblastoma, the methods and the types of evaluations we do statistically are also evolving. The way we did about statistical evaluations <coughs> 20 years ago is changing to how we do them now. New statistical models are being used, new ways of doing calculations are being done, and now it's asking us, and now it we're literally going back and using these new statistical models and going back and re-looking at some of our data. And, and Kate, that's why I said, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I, um, on this, is that when I saw the work that was presented in terms of the correction, in, in my mind, it was, gee, they were using a statistical model now in 2013-14 that probably wasn't done at all back in, you know, 15 years ago. And is it that use of that new statistical model with newer calculations, what we're now seeing changes? And it could be affecting not just this study, but it could be affecting studies over time, too. And it always behooves us that as we report studies, 
And then as we come up with new statistical models, so go back and look at the impact of those statistical models and work that was already done. Maybe, but I think the other issue that's come out now and is coming out in several COG studies is that when a study is designed, when a clinical trial is written, these statisticians do calculations and they base how many patients need to be studied and what kind of difference they're looking for at a certain time point. And this study was designed to look at a three-year time point, which is what was originally proposed. And so then they said, we don't know really, you know, if we should even be updating these studies. I mean, I think the long-term follow-up is very interesting to look at the long-term survival and how many late relapses there are, which Absolutely, because our, our goal here yeah. is clearly to get these kids to a durable, curable, right, long life. Yeah. And unfortunately, we've seen patients relapse eight or ten years after transplant. So I think it's important, but... As Greg said, if the study wasn't designed statistically to do that, you may get some different answers. But that was not the case here. It was simply a mathematical error. <laughs> That's why I asked for that. You know, one of, the, uh, one of the issues that I've certainly faced in, in transplant, a number of studies I've done, uh, is that I've learned over time that in designing a study, it's your choice of your historical controls that you base your statistical model on that has a huge impact on the subsequent results from your study. And what Kate just said, I think people have to really appreciate, is that they were looking at a long-term analysis of patients treated on a, what I view as, in my mind, to this date, still the most important high-risk neurobastoma study ever done, CCG3891. CCG3891, in my mind, changed the roadmap for neuroblastoma therapy, for high-risk neuroblastoma So again, to emphasize, that's the study that looked at the use of bone marrow transplant and isotretinoin and for our patients with neuroblastoma. Right, versus just continued chemotherapy or, or no isotretinoin. Um, but the historical controls changed over time. You know, the... Meaning the patients that the were patients comparing it to... The patients changed over time, because as Kate then went back and did, a long-term follow-up of those patients. He's literally doing a long-term follow-up of the historical controls that were then being used in current clinical trial design. So it's important to understand that our historical controls may change even over time. So basically, literally, our, our baseline, our starting point, Maybe. is moving on us. And we, may, <laughs> yeah. we may be running a longer race as a result. So and the, the other thing that's people need to understand um, is that because of the very small number of neuroblastoma patients with only about 300 high-risk patients available each year in North America, we have to look for very big differences in our studies unless we want them to run for 10 years and then they outrun the changes in <laughs> <Right>. therapy. <laughs> so we look for a significant difference in when there's a 20% or a 15% improvement. If you look at a breast cancer, or colon cancer, or lung cancer trial, they're looking for a 3% improvement or a 4% improvement or an extension of life by six weeks, which we don't feel is clinically important in children. We would like to see an extension by years, if not long-term survival. So. So it is much harder for us to achieve a statistically significant result in our trials unless we hit what we call a home run. 
Right. You know, in breast or lung cancer, as Kate said, if you want to, if you want to look at a drug to see if it will give you a one or two percent or three percent, as Kate said, improvement using that novel drug, you need to enroll potentially several thousand patients. Yeah. And they do three thousand, four thousand patients. And, and because of our limited patient numbers, we can't look at drugs that may give you a one, two, three percent improvement. So for us, we have to look to see if drugs are literally. Home runs. Maybe not home runs, but at least doubles or triples. Yeah. <laughs> I'm saying if they'll give you a 20% improvement or 30% improvement. Yeah. Uh, and that allows us from a statistical method to not need as many patients. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, but because of that, when you're dealing with smaller sample sizes for your trials, there's a lot more variability that you can get in your results. And thus, our results can be subject to some fluctuation in time, especially when we go back and look at yeah, so we had, what, 379 randomized patients in that original mm -hmm. bone marrow yeah. transplant trial. Which is, awesome. Which is a huge number yeah. of patients really to be studying. <laughs> but in terms of breast cancer or lung cancer, it would be yeah. a small trial. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Wouldn't be done. Wouldn't be done. Yeah. Phase two study. Yeah. <laughs> phase two All right. Well, thank you very much for that clarification. Um, and thank you both for your time. It's been a, a great talk today. Thank you. And thank you, Dr. Shaw, as well as Dr. Strevey, for that great interview. And thanks to Dr. Matei and Yannick for their insights. Again, we're happy to read your emails during a future podcast and discuss your comments and questions. If you send us a note at TWIPO, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow us on Twitter at TWIPO Podcast and sign up for an automatic notification when we post new episodes by registering using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. The team includes Donald Lewinsky, our executive producer, and Jenny Song, director of communications. Also thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.